Our scripture lesson today is taken from Luke 24. This is portions of the story of the road to Emmaus where two disciples are walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus on the third day after the death and resurrection of Christ. I will alert you when I am skipping forward to uh, subsequent verses for those of you who are following along in your Bibles. I'll begin at Luke 24, verse 13. Now, on that same day, two of the disciples were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still looking sad. And then to verse 25. Then Jesus said to them, How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things? And then enter into his glory. Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. And then verse 32. The disciples said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road? While he was opening the scriptures to us. This is the word of the Lord. So three weeks ago I preached the first of a three-part series entitled How I Fell in Love with the Bible. I shared with you that my affection for scripture took life when I was in high school. And I encountered a series of narrative sermons on the parable of the prodigal son that related that parable to the civil rights movement that was going on around me. I also related that my love for scripture grew in my seminary years when I learned that these individual stories of the Bible we all you know, learned in Sunday school, or some of us did, were all part of an overarching biblical story of creation, fall, and redemption. A story that God enacts and promises to bring to full full fruition, a story that's related in the dense but beautiful passages from Genesis to Revelation. Today I want to bear witness to a series of biblical scholars who have strengthened my lifelong love of this book. While I did not know them when I first fell in love with the Bible, it is they who have helped sustain that love into what has become a 50-year marriage. When two disciples are walking from Jerusalem to, Jericho, to, from Jerusalem to Emmaus, three days after the death of Christ, they are in shock over the brutality of that death, the death of one to whom they have committed their lives. A man joins them whom they do not recognize. He begins to interpret to these disciples things about himself that are found in all of the scriptures. They still do not recognize him. But as it is late, they ask him to stay the night with them. 
When they set bread before him at the evening meal, and he breaks that bread in their presence, as we shall experience in a few minutes, they then recognize him as the risen Christ. They say to one another, were not our hearts burning within us when he was talking to us on the road, when he was opening the scriptures to us? Over the years, the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments have acquired a power to lead my heart to burn within me. Sometimes this happens when I preach them. Sometimes it happens when I teach them. Sometimes it happens in a sermon that I may read or hear in person or online. Sometimes it happens when I come across the way Scripture is used or appears in literature or popular culture. But behind my burning heart lies the work of people who have devoted their lives to the study and teaching of Scripture in secondary schools, in colleges, in universities, in seminaries around the world. I want to share with you today how some of these scholars have opened the scriptures for me in hopes that further study and worship on your part may lead your own heart to burn as well. Let us pray. For the cloud of witnesses who go before us, we give you thanks, O God. Speak through them to us. That scripture will never cease yielding its meanings and insights to our hungry hearts. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. An early scholar who deeply influenced me was the late Dr. Brevard Childs of Yale University. Like me, Childs was Southern and Presbyterian. He developed what was called canonical criticism. Now, to put it simply, for the first, for the hundred years or so before Childs wrote, most biblical scholars and preachers and teachers were trained in what is known as the historical critical method, in which a scholar or a reader seeks to uncover the historic the historical and literary context of a particular text to determine how that text related to its own day and then determine if that text can relate to our day. While not discounting the importance of historical context, Childs argued that over the centuries, as the people of Israel And then the church, committed to writing the stories, the laws, the histories, the sayings that had been passed down for generations orally. And as these writings made their way into the worship and teaching of the synagogue and church, what was most important was not how these texts had developed over time and circumstance, but rather how they were heard in the life of the synagogue and church as they were read, studied, sung, chanted, taught, and preached. If prior to Childs the action of a biblical text 
involve trying to understand its origins. After Childs, the action of the text was found as it spoke to the church and to the individual in its finished form. The question was not, can we find where Noah's Ark landed? But why did God choose to start over with the project of creation? Child's writing went a long way to allowing the preacher, the teacher, or the person in the pew to receive the text directly and to hear the voice of God through the printed or spoken word before them. Now, during those years at Union Seminary in New York, I was also fortunate to study the Gospel of John, the stories of Jesus' birth and infancy, and the story of his passion and death from one of the top New Testament scholars of the last century, Father Raymond Brown. From Father Brown, I learned that the four Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are four distinct voices, something like the four distinct preachers you have at Westminster, I guess. (laughs) I learned that each writer brings his particular emphasis about the good news of Jesus Christ, writing from a particular community or congregation, and primarily addressing that community. Part of the story of the Bible is having these four distinct portraits of the same subject, Jesus Christ. This allows for a greater depth and richness for us as we hear and read Scripture in our own context in the singularity of our own lives, in what William Tyndale called applying the medicine of Scripture each to our own source. Now, as the 90s evolved and I eventually came to Westminster in 2004, the writings of four women have taken front and center in my growing understanding of Scripture. The first is Dr. Phyllis Tribble. She was raised Southern Baptist in Richmond, got a Ph.D. at Union, taught a couple of places before returning to Union, though after I had graduated, and then retired from the divinity school she had helped found and lead at Wake Forest. Tribble was an early feminist scholar known for her book entitled Texts of Terror. Drawing on her Southern Baptist commitment to not ignoring or discounting any text of Scripture, she wrestled long and hard with some of the most difficult texts, particularly ones in which women were brutally raped or killed, always trying to see what we can glean from these texts as sacred Scripture, even as painful, and dehumanizing as some of these stories are. For me, the most helpful concept that Tribble articulated in an essay in the New Interpreter Study Bible, which we use for my courses, 
is the distinction between whether a text of Scripture is being given to us as prescriptive of what we are to do or as descriptive of what we as human beings are capable of doing. Not every text, says Tribble, is given to us with the command, go therefore and do likewise. Some are given to us to show how cruel and violent we fallen human beings can be. Tribble taught that it is important for each of us as we read scripture to ask this question. Is this text being given to me to prescribe how I am to be? Or is it to illuminate and warn what I or we are capable of doing as fallen people? Tribble taught that it's important to ask this question as we are reading texts, as we are following the narrative of Scripture, particularly when we are reading these texts of terror. Now, the second female scholar who's had a major impact on me is Dr. Margaret Mitchell, not of Gone with the Wind fame. She is a Roman Catholic scholar my age of the New Testament and the Greco-Roman world and actually of Roman rhetoric and teaches at the University of Chicago. She supervised my thesis for my Doctor of Ministry degree at McCormick Seminary in the early 1990s. The thesis that I wrote was on Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth. Mitchell stressed that it is important to read the Apostle Paul as a working pastor, making on-the-ground decisions about issues that came up in the life of the young congregation that he had founded at Corinth, but which, after he left, had become divided over which members and leaders were more spiritual than others. Mitchell taught me to view Paul as a human being, trying to strike a delicate balance between holding his congregation together in unity in the midst of the diversity of its members' views, opinions, and backgrounds. Paul did this, Mitchell said, by urging members to put the interests of others ahead of their own interests or views whenever possible, and uniting around what was essential, which in Paul's belief was the death and resurrection of Christ. Mitchell's teaching spoke directly to me as a pastor. It was a narrative way to read Paul rather than the doctrinal way in which Paul had been read for centuries. And it is the way I have continued to read and teach Paul. At the time as our denomination was in the middle phase of a 40-year process of sorting out what we believed about human sexuality, particularly about gay and lesbian ordination and then marriage, 
This approach to Paul proved enormously helpful to me as a pastor of a church with decidedly mixed views, which is the only kind of congregation I have ever served. A third person who's influenced me in the last 20 years is Dr. Christine Roy Yoder, with whom I have studied at the Movable Feast Preaching Seminar. Yoder teaches at Columbia Seminary in Atlanta. If Phyllis Tribble is known for tackling texts of terror, Yoder could be known for tackling texts of boredom. She is a specialist in Proverbs. I have said that reading the middle chapters of the book of Proverbs, chapters 10 through 29, is like reading, if you all will remember this archaeological reference, it's like reading a telephone directory (laughs) with the names not in alphabetical order. There's one pro, you know, there's a proverb followed by a proverb followed by a proverb, and they're just stacked one on top of another, and they don't relate to each other. Yoder's thesis, which many of you have heard me say, is that the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs show a father who is seeking to inculcate wisdom in his adolescent son in an affluent educated, and urban environment. The father does this by appealing to the adolescent male's budding sexual awareness, by depicting the choices his son will face as being between two appealing female figures, wisdom and folly. With chapter 10, the young man is suddenly cast out into the world on his own. And he has to choose from among the 19 chapters of miscellaneous Proverbs he has inherited from home which teaching, which proverb to apply to each situation he faces. In other words, as an adult on his own, he has to draw on the wisdom from his home and training. Some of the wisdom he has learned is directly contradictory. Much of it is repetitive. Some of it is unclear. But ultimately, the choice rests with him. And if he chooses well, over time, He may become mature enough and strong enough to marry the final character who appears in the book of Proverbs, the strong, independent, wise woman labeled in our NRSV translation as the capable wife in Proverbs 31. Now, the fourth and most recent addition of female interpreters to my collection of biblical scholars is Dr. Aviva Gottlieb Zornberg. She's a literary scholar. Her original Ph.D. in England is in American literature. She's also the daughter of the former chief rabbi of Scotland. 
Zornberg has published five books on Midrash, which is the Jewish commentary on scripture that has existed since the early Middle Ages. Zornberg is the most gifted writer among, that I've encountered among biblical scholars. She's versed in American literature and psychoanalytic theory and modern philosophy and Midrash. She frequently quotes Ralph Waldo Emerson and T.S. Eliot. I have devoured her commentaries as soon as they have been published, reading and rereading them so many times. After marking up the paperback editions when they start to fall apart, I buy hardback copies for preservation purposes. Zornberg studies ancient scholars who were committed to connecting all of the dots to a story in the Bible. And the ways in which one story of scripture will relate or refer or allude to another story. Midrash speculates on action or thoughts between the lines. On what may have been said or thought or felt by characters who were silent or even unnamed, often women, or what may have happened between the lines in the story but not have been recorded. This way of reading, especially coupled with her sensitive knowledge of Hebrew, can bring a biblical story or character to life in ways that are unmatched by other scholars whose works I have read or studied. This summer and into next fall, I'm going to be preaching on several characters from the book of Genesis, and I will draw heavily from Aviva Zornberg. Now, while this sermon has been a bit like having your mechanic explain how he or she diagnoses the repairs needed on your car, I have felt like you as a congregation have the ability and the appreciation to hear a little bit about what goes on under the hood. Even as you, like me, are more interested in how the car is going to get us from one place to another as smoothly and quietly as possible in D.C. traffic, the one unwelcome rejuvenation we are experiencing after COVID. None of these scholars would play the role in my life they play if I had not discovered a sense of delight and indeed compulsion for preaching and teaching the scriptures, a delight and compulsion that your response has only fueled in the years that I have preached and taught in your midst. As church and culture have changed a good deal over the last two decades, I have come to believe that the Bible is the only real tool the church has. And in recent years, I've come to believe that the church is the only institution that will be able to carry the Bible forward into the future, even as often as we do great damage to this book by the ways we misuse it. But the Bible is all that we have, and increasingly, 
we, the church, are the only entity in society who can preserve it and present it to the world, particularly if we work hard to present it both well and with integrity that allows it to shape us rather than us to shape it. Now, in the final sermon in this series, which will happen next week, I will try to give you some practical advice concerning how you can fall in love with the Bible. But spoiler alert, one of the best ways is if you'll just sign up for either of my Old or New Testament classes, which will start again next fall. So this particular sermon ends with a commercial. And I'll see you next week.